For years I have tried to comprehend somehow, feeling in my body somehow, what it must have been like for Mary and the disciples that first morning. I mean, we have the, we have the whole story, so we kind of cheat. What was it like for them? What, how startled and what an understated word for what they must have experienced. How uncomprehending to come to this place expecting to see something and suddenly there's this emptiness. There's a, a void. There's an abyss. There's just nothing. What was it like for them to try and comprehend something they had never comprehended before? Lately, I've been reading a book by Thomas Friedman called Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide for Thriving in the Age of Acceleration. Same person that wrote 10 years ago, The World is Flat. And Friedman is writing in this book about the velocity, those are the words he used, the acceleration, you know, that feeling when you're in a car and it just propels you, but even more so, the velocity and acceleration of the times in which we live a velocity that we as a species haven't experienced before because of three things that he says aren't just separate things but are interwoven in some kind of a nexus that creates this mutually feeding, exponentially racing reality for us. Changes in technology, changes in globalization, and changes to the planet. Any one of which would be a lot for us to take in, but when all three are accelerating, It's gotten to a point now where when we say we can't keep up, that's not just a phrase. He suggests, for example, that a thousand years ago, about a hundred years would be the span for us if some new technology came in to kind of assimilate it as as a people. I mean, if you lived in the 12th century, your average day really wasn't very different from someone who lived in the 11th century. Pretty similar. By the 1900s, innovations and experiments and and new technologies were to the point where we had about 20 to 30 years as a culture, as a people, as a species to kind of understand, comprehend, assimilate, and become part of our all, our day-by-day things. Things like knowing what these things were about, how to teach them to other people, how to understand what their best uses are, and also to understand what their worst uses are. And so as a community that we can find ways of regulating these things so that they don't just take advantage in ways that we wouldn't want them to. Think about the telephone in the early 1900s. Kind of a static thing. If if you're a Downton Abbey fan, you may remember the episode where the telephone is introduced to the house and the dowager countess comes in and looks at it with her wonderful eye. I can't do what Maggie Smith can do by any means. And she says, electricity, and now the telephone. I feel like I'm living in an H.G. Wells movie. (laughs) The telephone. In the 1960s, we got push-button phones. Pretty cool, right? In the past 10 years, I realize I've had a flip phone, a BlackBerry, two iPhones at least, and I still have to call my daughters to figure out how to use them. I mean, that's just kind of a metaphor. And then you put that in with globalization and boundaries. And what do boundaries mean these days? What does accessibility mean as 
as a species and a planet and the speed of technology and changes that are just rapidly, rapidly coming at us. And he says the resulting increase in the velocity of information is making the world not only interconnected and hyper-connected, but everyone everywhere is more vulnerable to actions of anyone anywhere. And the feeling he suggests is one of dislocation. So if the world feels crazy right now, yeah, it is. Because bodily, cellularly, we are not able to take it in as fast as it's coming at us. And so governments are trying to figure out, how do you govern when boundaries and borders really mean nothing anymore? And by the time they get a grasp on some kind of technology of what it means to be a government these days, it's passed them by. Talk to a parent who's trying to raise a kid today about the media that's coming at their kids and how fast it changes by the time they come up with some regulations for them. Or the news story recently on NPR where the gentleman who was in his early 40s had gone back to community college because his job was obsolete and got retrained and now is in his early 50s and is back at the community college again because that job is obsolete and said, I didn't think I'd have to do this twice, and I'm guessing that maybe I'm going to have to do it a third time before I retire. We're changing that quickly, and things becoming obsolete so quickly before we even grasp what they're all about. The world's feeling crazy, it is. It's a great time to be a therapist. <laughs> Especially if you're a Jungian therapist, where you get to talk about dreams and these collective... Never mind, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> About those waters, anyway. The word cognitively is dislocation, but the feeling is guttural cellular anxiety. How do we deal with it? And so as I've been reading Friedman, I'm getting a taste of what Mary felt that morning at the tomb. Of what the disciples felt that morning at the tomb because there was nothing in their brain, nothing in their life experience, nothing where they could take this information and say, that's what this is about. Ah, Jesus said this stuff, and now we get it. Instead, there is nothing. They're not having to think outside the box. There is no box. It's just been gone. There is nowhere for them to figure out, what does this mean? A few weeks ago, we heard Nicodemus say, Jesus, do I have to be born again? What are you saying? Like, can I climb in my mother? And he said, no, you can't climb in your mother, but it's like doing that. Where you're having to just completely start over from everything you thought you've known. How can our eyes be healed? It's changing so fast. But the gift of the church is that we're not expecting to figure this out today, this resurrection. The gift of the church is that we're taking the next 50 days so that with our ancestors, we can listen to their stories of dislocation, their stories of not knowing, their stories of meeting Jesus two times, three times, four times, and still not recognizing him. Mary, who has loved Jesus for how many years, and looks at him and says, you must be the gardener. No. I'm not the gardener, Mary. 
And so the church says, yes, dislocation. Yes, you should feel like it's all shifted. In fact, not just shifted, it's gone. And so we're going to tell you our stories of how we dealt with that. How we dealt with not knowing. Of not understanding what we were seeing. Our stories of being in the abyss, of being in the void, of feeling like we left one shore and there's no land in sight for a long time. Because if Lent is asking those huge questions that we said we would ask five weeks ago, if Lent is about where we say, help us to see how the planet is broken and our place in that. If Lent is where we say, help us to understand where our economic transactions are killing other people, sometimes literally. If Lent is about, help us to understand what groups of people are the grist for our well-being and feeling well-being, then what other kind of answers to those questions would we expect than resurrection? A complete new way of being. And when we ask those questions, we should be afraid of what we're going to see or not see, what we have to relearn, some new shift that we haven't comprehended, but we know we can't go back. And so with Mary, we're here this morning choosing to step into the void of asking those kind of questions, asking to see anew, and accepting that when we ask those things, well, we're going to be frightened. And if we as a species have shown anything, we're not really good when we're frightened. We're not really good with abysses. I mean, just listen to the gospel story about Jesus when they realized they couldn't dominate Jesus, that's where we start at least. Let's try to at least dominate him. When if we can't dominate, then we'll destroy. And we'll remove that which threatens us. Violence is part of the regular story with Jesus and with us. The violence isn't our only tool. When asked what is the biggest disease in America today, our Surgeon General said, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's isolation, which the disciples also practice and tell us about in their stories, where they're hiding and they're trying to get away from the world because they can't comprehend it and it's too frightening, so let's just go hide. Let's just cut ourselves off and somehow figure a way to put something up that will keep that out there. And if violence and isolation don't work, then one of our best and favorite tools is just medication. You know? <laughs> Mine's dark chocolate. Sometimes single malt. Let me just numb myself because I can't take it in. And I'm feeling way more vulnerable than I ever want to feel. And Friedman and Mary are right about the dislocation, the unmooring, the feelings of adrift. But the church again gives us this gift of 50 days to pause, to listen to the stories, to hear our ancestors invite us into the void rather than trying to get away from it. Being brave enough just to figure out how do we breathe and stay with this and what tools might help us stay in the void long enough to start noticing some appearances. Well, 
one of the tools we're given is why we are revisiting our baptismal vows today. Because what the early church found is that there's not going to be someday we're just, aha, or you cognitively or we cognitively figure out. But what they're saying is, here was what happened. Here's how frightened we are. But what we kept doing was getting together and telling the stories about what we had seen and sharing meals, and we went back out. And then we got back together, and we heard some more stories, and we shared some more meals, and we went back out again. And if you keep doing that, you will get the glimpses of the appearances that at first you may not even recognize, but when you keep sharing the stories of what you're seeing, again and again something starts to emerge in your midst and you begin to realize there's resurrection in your midst. It's about the rhythms. It's about the practices. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread and the prayers? in the rhythms of space, in the rhythms of quiet, in the rhythms of reflection? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, expecting that every person you encounter, whether it's in the flesh or through the news, is a manifestation of the risen one? Will you respect the dignity of all persons and strive for justice and peace among all people? Because the church is saying, if you do those things, you'll start seeing appearances. You'll start seeing resurrection when you choose these patterns of life and choose the creation of relationships. That is the gift of this Easter season. Fifty days of not knowing. Fifty days of dislocation. Fifty days of learning to see again. Or, as quantum physicist Carlo Rovelli states, a void is not emptiness in quantum field because there still is, there still exists relationships in the void. A void is not emptiness in quantum field because there still is relationship in the void. Resurrection is where we find relationship in the void. So Mary, again, is offering us dislocation. Mary and the disciples show up at this empty place thinking they're finding nothing. But what they begin to realize is that in that empty space, there are still relationships in the void. Yes, it's coming at them at light speed, and yes, it's dislocating, and it's more than just kind of insight, like, gosh, I hadn't thought of that before. What's coming to them is something beyond what they could have comprehended. Resurrection. And by the way, what does it say that God sees us as capable of seeing the appearances? So today and the 50 days of Easter are about dislocation. They're about having our Lenten prayers answered. Today we with Mary are crossing into the void and what we will learn is that those who show up begin to see 
And so, blessed 50 days of dislocation and appearances.